This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 184. And the quote of the day is, don't practice until you get it right. Practice until you can't get it wrong. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. What's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. This session is brought to you by Dream Symbols, and we're actually giving away a 22-inch Dream Gorilla Bliss ride. So if you go to drummersresource.com forward slash dream, you can fill out a little survey and you'll be entered to win that symbol. Again, drummersresource.com forward slash dream and we're giving away a 22 inch gorilla bliss ride which is pretty awesome so this podcast is a little bit different as you know i'm good buddies with daniel glass and you may or may not know that i have a network that he started a podcast under called the daniel glass podcast and i wanted to let you listen in on one of his episodes because i think that this is a really really important one so if you haven't heard this on his uh, i wanted to to bring it on to drummer's resource podcast to let you know about it and the podcast is all about deliberate practice so it basically shows you a deeper understanding of the concept of deliberate practice can help you perform at levels that you thought were reserved for masters. And this is a a different way to look at practicing. And it ties in with the quote in the beginning of not practicing until you get it right, but practicing until you can't get it wrong. And there's a bunch of show notes for this as well that I will share on drummersresource.com forward slash session 184 uh, for everything that Daniel talks about in the podcast. But I think it's a really, really important message for you to listen because I think it'll change the way that you practice. Also, there's a book mentioned in here. There's two books that I recommend that are mentioned in this podcast. One is called Effortless Mastery. The other one is called Talent is Overrated. And Talent is Overrated is actually available on audible.com and you can get it for free. If you go to audible.com forward slash drummer, you can get that book 100% free. You can listen to it on the go because they are a sponsor of the podcast. So you can go to audible.com forward slash drummer get your free audiobook of talent is overrated i highly recommend it so without further ado let's get into this podcast with my man daniel glass all about deliberate practice you're listening to the daniel glass podcast episode one let's get to it people this is it right here uh-huh then you gotta add some with a little tricks uh-huh. you'll be swinging uh-huh right it's the Daniel Glass Podcast, offering a deeper look into Daniel's unique take on music, drumming, and life. Philosophy, motivation, musical deconstructions, and conversations with celebrity drummers. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. Uh, this is Daniel Glass, your host drummer, author, educator, thinker, talker, and uh, any number of other descriptive terms that may or may not be allowed on the air. I wanted to just say a few words of introduction since this is episode one of the podcast and uh, sort of let you know why I'm getting into this uh, particular form of information sharing. Um, I've been in this business for a long time, verging on 30 years, 
I have uh, played a lot, read a lot, researched a lot, hung out a lot with a lot of folks, written a lot, produced DVDs. And it seemed to me that a 140-character tweet, a Facebook post, a blog post, a newsletter, message, an email, these sorts of things uh, are great for expressing certain kinds of information, but that I was uh, looking for a longer-form approach to sharing some of my thoughts and philosophies about the world and life and music and rhythm. So I want to thank my buddy over at Drummer's Resource, Mr. Nick Ruffini, for introducing me to the idea of, hey, why don't you do a podcast and uh, give yourself an opportunity to open up a little bit more about some of the things that you're thinking about. So thanks, Nick, for that. And we're going to start it off today discussing a topic that is near and dear to my heart, uh, the concept of practice. And... um, more specifically, a concept that I have recently been turned on to that is on my mind a lot. It's kind of a buzzword these days, and that uh, topic is deliberate practice. So buckle up, and we'll see you on the other side. All right, so let's get into today's topic of discussion. And that topic relates to something that every musician, every drummer has to deal with in bettering themselves on their instrument, of course, that is practice. And more specifically, what I would like to talk about and get into is a term called deliberate practice. Now, maybe some of you out there have heard this term. It's kind of become a a hot buzzword these days, deliberate practice. Uh, And what exactly does that mean? Uh, And what exactly can it do for us? How can it make our practice better? Uh, And how can it make uh, us better as musicians? So, um, I'd like to start just by asking a few basic questions that hopefully we can answer and that maybe all of us have asked ourselves at one time. Essentially, what does it mean to practice? In other words, what are we practicing for uh, and how, are, how do we practice? Um, perhaps we've said, how can I make the best of my practice time? What should I be practicing? That can kind of be overwhelming, right? Because there's so much to practice. We could practice 24-7 for the rest of our lives, and we would never, uh, you know, get there, so to speak. So uh, in order to effectively get better, to use practice to become better at what we do, that's what we're going to talk about today. And that's really where it goes to the heart of this concept of deliberate practice. So I'm going to start by, you know, relaying a personal anecdote to you guys and and talk about my own personal journey through this topic because I think that'll be something people can relate to and we'll touch on a number of important subjects along the way. And the first thing I'd like to address is um, my studies with Freddie Gruber, which were pivotal for me in not only understanding the drums and the drum set, but learning how to practice in a whole new kind of a way. Um, Prior to coming in and starting to study with Freddie, which was in January of 1992. I got out of the Dick Grove School of Music at the end of 1991. I wanted to continue studying. Lots and lots of people had said, hey, there's this guy named Freddie Gruber around town. He's kind of a uh, an, an unknown entity, not unknown, but a best kept secret, I guess I should say. Uh, you should go, stu- you know, you should check him out. So, um, When I started studying with Freddie, the way I had always practiced and learned drums prior to that time, I'd been playing uh, for 15 years up to to that point already, um, was that I would 
you know, grab a little from this book, grab a little from that drummer, maybe a lick or two. Maybe I would, um, you know, want to learn a certain style, uh, kind of the way that most people learn uh, drums and music uh, today. And certainly I learned some technique, but all of it was somewhat disjointed. So, you know, from this class or from this lesson or from this video, I got this little bit and that little bit. And it was always a bit frustrating to me. I mean, I I had been through a year of very intense music school at the Dick Grove School of Music. I had studied privately for years. I'd been playing in bands and school band and everything else under the sun. But I'd always felt that my learning didn't have like a succinct purpose. And this was, you know, it wasn't necessarily conscious, but it was very frustrating to me. Um, I felt that I was like a ship without a rudder. And I was just sort of cruising around on the ocean, and if the winds blew me towards this port and I grabbed some information or grabbed some stuff, then great, and then back out onto the seas. And I didn't really know sort of, I didn't have any sort of direct, directed nature to how I was studying the drums. And maybe a lot of you feel the same way. We just sort of grab bits and pieces of information from a lot of different spots. So what was really cool about Freddie was that as I studied with him and got into what he was teaching and how I should practice it, suddenly I felt like I I added that rudder to my ship and I began to have some serious direction. But what was really interesting about studying with Freddie was that The way he taught and what he taught me was it didn't really make sense in terms of the bigger picture of what drumming is all about. In other words, he taught me a little bit and piece about, and this is how he taught all his students, a little bit and piece about a certain kind of a grip, say the French grip, the German grip, the traditional grip. Uh, We'd work on a piece, and it didn't have anything to do with drumming. It was sort of like, as I tell my students, it was like a wax-on, wax-off, you know, the wax-on, wax-off scene from the Karate Kid, right? The the kid goes to the master. He says, I want to learn karate. And the master says, great, go paint my fence. Go wax my car and do it like this. And the kid's like, what, you're just going to put me to work? But, of course, after a while, he realizes that what he's been doing through the manual labor is learning these karate movements And then he has them in his muscle memory, and suddenly he doesn't have to think about them anymore. And that's sort of like what happened with Freddie. And so I didn't really have any conscious way to tie together what I was doing. I just sort of did what he told me. And studying with Freddie, and I think for my students, studying with me, is a bit of a leap of faith at the beginning, because what you learn isn't anything that can directly be related to drumming. In other words, the first, say, many series of exercises, uh, you you sort of uh, just have to practice them in faith because it's not something you're going to go out and do on your gig that night. It just doesn't work that way. And I'll explain as we get farther in that this actually was deliberate practice. I didn't know it at the time, but this was my first introduction to what that actually is, that concept. So, Moving onward, I studied with Freddie, you know, the technique began to come together, I began to utilize it in what I was doing, and everything was great. But sort of, then I got very involved with Royal Crown Review, and I'd really, I spent maybe the next seven years, six, seven years on the road, and I didn't really study all that much. And I used the techniques I'd learned from Freddie, and I studied the material I had from him. But the next sort of big aha moment came when... um, when I read a book called Effortless Mastery by Kenny Werner. And the, the book Effortless Mastery uh, really tackled a, a different aspect of this whole thing. 
uh, and this was more sort of the mental psychological aspect and kind of relates to the overwhelming nature of what am I supposed to practice to get better? Am I supposed to, you know, run exercises that have technique books? Am I supposed to play along with songs? Am I supposed to, you know, uh, study groove styles? You know, what's the best thing to practice? And although Freddie, I'd practiced his stuff, a lot of these questions were still there. And there was a lot of other, um, you know, issues I was trying to work out as a musician, especially because after those seven years with the Royal Crown Review, I then landed back in L.A., um, you know, it was right after, basically around 9-11, we lost a couple of members of the band. Suddenly the retro swing phenomenon that we had been at the forefront of came to an end. And I was faced with, wow, I got to go out and figure out, I got to get some work. Because suddenly Royal Crown stopped being as full-time as it once was. So um, a, a big turning point, I guess, came for me. Certainly I started studying again. I took some lessons with Bruce Becker fantastic teacher and someone that's very tied into Freddie Gruber's technique. Um, but I, I, uh, I, I read this book called Effortless Mastery, and I had had a lot of sort of this book, and I want to just talk about this book for a second because it really changed my life and my way of thinking about music and about drumming, and it sort of lifted a huge burden I had been carrying on my shoulders for a long time. And a lot of this is a burden that a lot of musicians carry. And this book, uh, Effortless Mastery, deals with um, sort of the head games that we play as musicians. When we look around and we see all these other great musicians out there and we go, how am I ever going to be as good as that person? Or how am I ever going to get to where that person is? And you feel like you want to quit, right? You know, we all have that experience where you see someone and they're so mind-blowing that you just want to put down your instrument and quit. And Effortless Mastery took that feeling away from me, that feeling of being less than, that feeling of of always feeling like, you know, how am I ever going to get there? Or there's no way, you know, being an elite drummer or being a great drummer, that's for other people. I'm just a common, ordinary, you know, musician, common, ordinary player. Uh, And what, what Kenny Werner's book does is, and it does a lot of things to alleviate these things, but uh, one of the things that Effortless Mastery really did for me was it talked about when you practice starting with something very, very simple. In other words, clear away, you know, the idea of practicing 50 different things and practicing them a little bit, each of those 50 different different uh, techniques, grooves, fills, whatever have you, and instead focus on something very, very basic. And in his book, he literally talks about playing one note. And he went through this whole process himself where he was so frustrated, and he's a great musician and has been, and he was a prodigy since day one. So, you know, he talks about feeling like he wanted to quit. Um, and so uh, what what he did was went back and just started with one note and playing one note. And I know this sounds airy-fairy and whatever, but in reality, then he took that one note and played that one note to a place where he had mastered it. And if it is something very simple, like playing one note or working on one little bit of a technique, it is something that we can master, and we can master it fairly quickly. And all of a sudden, when you start looking at practicing your instrument that way, slowing down, stripping away, getting to the core fundamental nature of what is going on, all of a sudden you start to see some amazing changes. And, you know, you guys out there probably heard the... 
you know, sort of the the parable of a butterfly flaps its wings in one part of the world, and the chain of events that occurs from that happening results in a hurricane happening on the other side of the globe. So very small things can have a very profound impact down the road. And for me, when I it sort of put in perspective the studying I had done with Freddie, which was again take something very basic, very simple, and not just go over it, gloss over it until you can quote unquote do it, but dig into it and get deep with it and raise the bar as far as what you what you expect from yourself or what you hope to achieve in learning something. And if you could do that with a very, very simple idea, a basic idea, then suddenly your whole notion of playing changes because you will have set the bar so that everything you learn will now, you'll want it to be at that level of quote-unquote mastery. Now, the term mastery, again, this is what I refer to when I'm talking about mastery, because people think, oh, in order to be a master, you have to, you know, go live in a practice room or a cave somewhere and, and spend 18 hours a day practicing. That's not what I mean by the term mastery. To me, the term mastery means that you uh, uh, are able to do one thing and do it so well that you do not have to think about it anymore. It is in your muscle memory. And that doesn't have to be all of drumming. That could be a simple way of striking the drum or playing a note on your instrument or working on you know a long tone with your embouchure. Uh, so Kenny Werner and Effortless Mastery, and again, in the show notes for this uh, episode of this podcast, I'll, I'll put links to all these things I'm going to talk about that have affected me. So um, a, a great example that I want to share, a story I want to share, comes from my friend Mark, uh, a fellow drummer. I won't mention his last name, but he went to school at William Patterson University in New Jersey at the same time that Bill Stewart, the great jazz drummer, was going there. And he used to say that, you know, he and Bill would be in practice rooms right next to each other so they could hear what each other was doing. And he would, he would you know, be practicing away, and then he'd, he'd listen to what Bill was doing, and Bill would be playing, like, this one idea, one lick or one fill or one, you know, groove idea. Um, and Mark would keep on practicing. Then he'd go to lunch, you know, and then he'd come back to practice room, and he'd listen in again, and Bill was still playing the same idea. And I think that speaks to this idea of of this concept of deliberate practice, deliberate practice. So moving on now, uh, I read another resource, and this is maybe now two years ago. I got a book. Um, I got a book called uh, Talent is Overrated. Talent is Overrated. And this book uh, is by a gentleman named Jeff Colvin, who is the senior editor-at-large at Fortune magazine. The book, again, is called Talent is Overrated, and the subtitle is What Really Separates World-Class Performers from Everybody Else. And it was in reading this book that I first heard the term deliberate practice. And the thesis of this book, and again, if you're one of my students, I harangue my students about this all the time, uh, in a good and positive and loving way, of course. Uh, What the crux of this book says, that we tend to think of extremely talented people say, Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, Tiger Woods, Michael Jordan, um, Mozart, uh, as, as having some kind of God-given talent that they just have in their DNA, and that the rest of us can never achieve what they achieve because we, we don't have that. We're, we're not, we don't have this superhuman talent within us. 
And what this guy says is that way of viewing the world really isn't true. What, what these people have is a couple of things. Uh, number one, they were all introduced to whatever their talent is at a very early age. So you think of Tiger Woods or the Williams sisters or Mozart who had parents who already were specializing in what they did, and they got very high-level training at an early age. So they they saw at at an early age what was possible, and they had the opportunity to dig in. And obviously, they had to have the passion for it. Um, But these are not things that separate them from us. In other words, um, I didn't decide to go to music school until I was 24, um, or I didn't get to music school till I was 24. Uh, I, and I didn't gain a serious passion for drumming uh, until after I finished college. And yet, once I dove in, I was able to, you know, over time, of course, get to a high level. So it isn't that, I mean, I, I played when I was younger, but it was just for fun. So uh, again, we can achieve these things. And the way we can achieve them and the way that the the Mozarts of the world have gotten to this very high level is through what's called deliberate practice. So what is deliberate practice exactly? Um, Well, uh, the way it's defined in this book is essentially that rather than, you know, and again, it's the same concept that I've been talking about, rather than flitting about and practicing a little of this and a little of that until we can kind of do it, the idea is to to dig in and begin to understand the fundamentals of what is going on at a very deep level, to do some digging and stripping away so we can get to the absolute core of, of what's happening. And I think, so the guy makes a lot of examples in the book. He says, well, I can go to a, a driving range and I can drive golf balls for two hours. Does it mean that I've gotten any better? Absolutely not. And we as musicians have the same experience in the practice room. Just because you go into a practice room for two hours doesn't mean that you walk out being any better. Because a lot of our practicing habits uh, are based on doing what we are already good at and doing more of that. And not addressing what we actually need to do to improve. So um, I remember when I was in music school, I had a, a bass teacher, this guy Dean Taba also from Hawaii, like myself. I think he lives there now. Great, incredible bass player, great teacher. And we used to ask him, well, one time we asked him, we said, well, Dean, you're so good. What do you practice? And what he said is, I practice what scares me. I practice what scares me. And that was like, wow, that's kind of true. You know, most of us don't like what scares us. So in the case of drummers, that's playing softly, playing slowly, playing with lots of space between beats. Um, And I know for myself, when I was younger, I kind of ignored all that. And what happens when you start ignoring those kinds of things and you only focus on, say, playing fast or playing loud, is that that becomes kind of a hairy monster in the closet. And the longer you ignore the hairy monster, the more the hairy monster grows and becomes a terrifying thing for us. And then we don't want to go deal with those things that we are not good at. And we, we avoid them. And that can take, take you down, essentially, from truly becoming a better musician because 
it, you'll have some serious lacks, lackings in your fundamentals. And we play these psychological head games and we take ourselves out of the picture. So that's another reason why simplifying and working on some very basic things and making some changes at some very fundamental levels can have very profound effect on, on, on what you do. So I started digging into this concept of deliberate practice, and I came upon, uh, well, actually a student of mine uh, turned me on to some articles by a guy named uh, Jeremy, uh, sorry, uh, what is his name? James Clear. James Clear. And he has a lot of very interesting articles about habits and how we go through life and bad habits and good habits. And he also talks about this idea of, of, of uh, deliberate practice. So suddenly I'm starting to see deliberate practice all around me. And, you know, he talks about, again, this idea of, of, of breaking down this fundamental uh, kind of an idea. So what is deliberate practice exactly? Well, what he says, and I'll quote his article here, the article is, uh, the article is called, How Experts Practice Better Than the Rest. And what he says is, um, deliberate practice is when you work on a skill that requires one to three practice sessions to master. If it takes longer than that, then you are working on something that is too complex. So once you master this tiny behavior, you can move on to practicing the next small task that will take one to three sessions to master. And then, of course, a lot of us have heard about the famous mastery equals, you know, how much time do I need to practice? That famous number of 10,000 hours of practice is what the masters have done to achieve a level of mastery. But the issue is, you could practice for 10,000 hours, and if all you practice is, again, either what you're already good at or stuff that ignores the fundamentals, then how much time you put in in the practice room may not really have all that much to do with how much better you're actually getting. So this is exactly what Freddie taught me without me even understanding it, and probably without Freddie even understanding it. He just was keyed into it and saw that it was having a profound effect on his students. But unfortunately, most people do not teach this way. So if you were to, when my students come to me often, they're very confused um, because what I teach is uh, like, is exactly like this. It's a very small step. And the idea is that we then develop along a continuum, step by step by step, where the very first step that you learned is still involved in everything 10 steps down the road. So all the steps are built on the previous steps, and it's a very linear, clear, focused way of evolving. Now, does it mean that it's going to be easy? No, because just, you know, in order to be great, there is no shortcut. You know, someone like Vinny Cagliuto or Steve Gadd, who we think are geniuses, who we think are so great, spent just as many hours in the practice room, if not more, than everybody, as everybody else. So there's no shortcut around hard practice. And again, I think the instruction, the, the way that Freddie would look at what you practiced was a big part of it as well, and something that has definitely uh, transferred over into a way that I teach, in that... For each one of these exercises, you know, it wasn't sort of a, well, okay, we've done thirty page 32, now we'll go on to page 33, next week it's page 34. It was really looking at, well, did you really get it? Do you really understand it? Is it really in your muscle memory? Is it really coming naturally to you? Are you really feeling what should be happening with the motion, with the setup, with the release, you know, with, with all of these factors uh, that play into it? 
And I think it's the devil in those kind of details when you practice that separates what happens, that separates the geniuses, as it were, uh, you know, the, the, those that, that we see as somehow having this greater amount of talent from the rest of us. And it's, again, not that they're possessed with some kind of great skill. It's that when they practice, they're looking at things in a particular way and pushing towards a particular goal that perhaps the average person who doesn't have exposure to this or doesn't have the drive, the energy, the focus, the desire, um, the passion, uh, isn't necessarily going to have. And that's what separates so-called, you know, the men from the boys, as it were, using a masculine uh, phrase, but certainly there are plenty of talented, passionate women that would be separated from the girls, I guess you could say, as well. But one of the one of the amazing kind of aha moments I had with this was that I read an article in the New York Times, which is called The Obtuse Triangle, written by Nicholas Davidoff. And it's all about the triangle offense that uh, Phil Jackson used so successfully uh, to win all those championships with both the Chicago Bulls and the L.A. Lakers. And it's an amazing article because... It's just a great story. The, the The triangle offense is based on a book called The Triple Post Offense that was written in 1962 by a guy named Fred Tex Winter. Now, no one, probably not no one, but not many people in the modern world, who all of whom know of Phil Jackson, if you even follow sports a little bit, know who Tex Winter is. But he is kind of the master behind this whole thing. And, and he was a guy who's a freak for fundamentals, complete freak for fundamentals. And his brain works where it's all he ever thinks about. So back in 1962, he wrote this book that outlines what would become the triangle offense. Now, he never achieved success as a head coach in the NBA, but he did teach uh, a coach at the, at the basketball, uh, at the college level. Um, and eventually became an assistant coach for the Bulls. And you have to understand that at this point in time, when he came on board and when Phil Jackson was brought on board, the Bulls were a great team already. They had Michael Jordan, they had Scottie Pippen and and, and the rest of the the crew. But they could not beat the Detroit Pistons, uh, and they could not win a championship. So the the GM, who was a, a pretty wise person, I guess, understood Tex Winter's offense and he saw something in Phil Jackson and put the two of those guys together and suddenly they start implementing this offense Phil Jackson light bulb goes on he gets it and they create this triangle offense and so what happens it's based completely on fundamentals and when the team comes to practice you know just when Jackson is the head coach he they make them start running these very very basic drills drills that they you know, that guys learned way back, probably when they were kids, when they were first on their first basketball teams in elementary school or high school or whatever. And they're going, you know, coach, we already know how to do this. But they went back and they reworked the fundamentals from scratch. And by the end of the season, they had a historic, a historic team. Same thing when, when Phil Jackson goes, you know, and they win, however, they won three championships, I guess. So then Phil Jackson goes back to... Uh, L.A. He goes to L.A. and same thing. Takes Tex with him. The Lakers have Kobe and Shaq, not winning championships. Can't get past the first or second round of the playoffs. Um, lo and behold, he uh, uh, they put them through fundamentals and they won six championships, I believe. 
Uh, I'm not a sports guy, so don't kill me if I, if I don't have all my numbers of championships correct. And one of my favorite anecdotes uh, from reading this article, it talks about how, you know, the Lakers now, they've won a bunch of championships and they're getting ready to have the big parade through the streets of downtown L.A. And uh, they're all happy and celebrating. And, and Tex, Tex Winter walks up to Kobe Bryant, the biggest star in the Lakers, and he says, man, you know, you really need to get your, you know, whatever overhead pass together because you almost you almost blew the game last night. And, and Kobe just, you know, in in speaking to this to author of the article, he just can't believe that, you know, this guy Tex, he's still thinking about fundamentals. He, he can't let go. So that's, you know, what kind of a mind that he had that it was just always working, you know, on these fundamentals. But it's a great it's a great story and it and it again shows just how deep these guys are into the fundamentals. But was so fascinating because um, you would think that since Phil Jackson had so much success that every team in the NBA would be using the triangle offense today. Guess how many use it? None. <laughs> and I think it's it's really uh, the art, the uh, article digs into this a little bit, but I think it, it sort of is a combination of the philosophical aspect that it, this strategy was so specific to Tex Winter and Phil Jackson working together that it was really their particular formula uh, that it's difficult for just anybody to replicate. And in some ways, studying with Freddie was a little bit like that because he didn't really have a, you know, he, he, he tailored what he was teaching towards each individual person. So he also had a keen insight to the student in addition to putting them through his his rigorous training, as it were, um, but it's a it's a, it's a testament to how you know certain people can teach those fundamentals in certain ways that is difficult to replicate per se. One other comment I'd like to make on a basketball related note, and again, just driving the same point home, LeBron James, currently the you know the greatest player in the game, probably um, when he left the Miami Heat last year and he went back to Cleveland. What he did all summer long was he went back and worked on his footwork, which I think, again, is something very basic that most basketball players do at the very beginning of of their career. Well, the greatest player in the game went back and spent all summer working on footwork. So, again, it drives home the, the idea that breaking things down and really working on them so it changes everything uh, can have amazing results. Uh, and... The last thing I'd like to talk about in this podcast related to this subject is another thing that I just encountered this morning, and uh, it's what inspired me to go, you know what, I need to do a podcast about this subject, and it has to do with, it, it, I'm going to read some quotes from a really amazing little documentary that I watched called The Universal Mind of Bill Evans. Bill Evans, of course, is a legendary jazz piano player, he played with Miles Davis, Um. Uh, on the the famous Kind of Blue record. He's on most of those tracks. And then he was a great leader. um, And in the world of jazz piano, he's one of the absolute legends. And he was known not only as a great player, but 
kind of a, a wizard and a mad scientist of the instrument in terms of his ability to get into the harmony and, and, and the way that he played. Um, it was very uh, sophisticated, I guess you could say, uh, even amongst the sophisticated world of jazz. And this documentary, which is on YouTube, so I'll put the link to that, um, is hosted by Steve Allen, who's uh, maybe you guys don't know who he is. He's, he's the, uh, uh, he hosted The Tonight Show back before Johnny Carson did. He's a, a kind of a, a bon vivant. He's a great piano player, composer himself. He played um, uh, Benny Goodman in The Benny Goodman Story. Um, and uh, he was a, a great, well-known musician and celebrity back in the day. So um, he introduces this. And, and the crux of this documentary, which is about 40 minutes long, is a conversation that Bill Evans has with his brother, Harry, who is a, um, a, uh, an academic at a university. And they're talking about jazz. And it's a fascinating and really super interesting uh, little documentary. But what I am taking these quotes from is the very beginning where Steve Allen is talking about Bill Evans. Uh, so this is Steve Allen talking about having your own style as it relates to Bill Evans. Quote, despite the strong influence that he has particularly on a young generation of musicians, I think the last thing that Bill, that Bill Evans wishes to do is to create a group of young pianists who play in his style. He argues, in fact, that style, for better or for worse, eventually comes of itself out of that mysterious interior well of creative inspiration, which I guess nourishes everybody in one degree or another. So I think what he's saying here is that, you know, a lot of times we say, well, we get our style from grabbing from a lot of other different people from our heroes, et cetera, et cetera. And what he's saying is uh, that Bill, Evan, Bill Evans feels that style should come from within. Now, okay, so I'll read on. It's much more important, Evans feels, to master fundamentals, both in theory, so that you understand what you're doing, and in an active practice, developing one's musical muscles. Okay? But it's not just technical facility, but the brain connection with the muscles. Oh, so not just technical facility, but the brain connection with the muscles, so to speak. Now, this is the important part. Developing that facility to the point where the subconscious mind can take over the basic mechanical task of playing, thus freeing the conscious to concentrate on the spontaneous creative element that distinguishes the best jazz and perhaps the best in all human activity. So what he's talking about here is deliberate practice. In other words, working on a basic fundamental so much that it becomes in your muscle memory, that you don't have to think about doing it anymore, and, uh, and you can then go on to the next piece of the puzzle. And that's really, by the way, what drumming and music should be. Freddie used to say to me, drumming should be as effortless as breathing or as walking down the street. In other words, it should not have to be something that you are thinking about. And this goes on, this is the last paragraph of Steve Allen's introduction, which I want to read. He says, now, if all of that I just said sounds like nonsense to you, and if you're a non-musician, for example, if you're a non-musician, well, you'll be familiar with this, quote-unquote, separation of jurisdictions from such common experiences as driving your car. You remember when you first learned to drive that you first consciously learned the separate movements, turning the key, working the pedals, etc. And then you gradually relegated all of that movement to the subconscious, which then took over the machine. 
So eventually, your subconscious drives around town while your conscious mind engages in conversation or listens to the radio or that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I know I've given a lot of different kinds of examples of this, of this concept. And again, it's easy to talk about it. To do it is, is, takes a tremendous amount of discipline. And to be quite frank, this is why most people don't become masters or don't take their talent to that nth degree because they simply don't have the concentration, don't have the patience, don't have the time, or they're afraid to, you know, tackle that monster in the closet. Um, But I think that for me, who I had a lot of those fears or I had a lot of that negativity, the way I was able to, and I'm not saying that I'm a master or a genius, but I certainly am a lot better than I was 10 years ago, five years ago. And when I practice, I, I have a way of practicing that allows me to learn things quickly and to understand what I'm going for. And that's what's so important about deliberate practice. Um, and for me, that idea of breaking things down to the most fundamental point uh, and working them until we, we, we change the basic fundamental on a cellular level, and then plug it back into what we're doing on a more complex level, that is sort of the key. Uh, so uh, I, I guess um, I'm going to end here, and I appreciate all of you listening to this podcast. I hope I haven't bored you with my ramblings, but to me this is very, very fascinating stuff. This is the, you know, this is the stuff we all can sit down and get our arms and legs to do various things to coordinate in various ways towards a certain style, towards a certain lick, towards a certain song. But the ability to understand what we're doing, how we strike, and how we move, and how we set up, and how we should think about what it is we're learning, those are the things that if we have that consciousness and that understanding, we can improve better regardless of whatever style we play. And and really this, you know, the thing I loved about studying with Freddie, one of the many things, and one of the many reasons why I stuck with him uh, when I was at those early stages where I didn't understand what he was teaching and I didn't understand him, and I don't know, you know, he was not an easy person to understand, but I saw who his students were and what they had achieved. And they were very famous people, very not famous people, uh, people that cut across a tremendously broad spectrum of styles, which excited me, because some teachers are known only as jazz teachers or rock teachers. Freddie taught guys of every, uh, guys and gals of of every uh, stripe, of of every style. Um, And I think that is the benefit of this kind of information, this kind of understanding and awareness of deliberate practice. And it it can make all of us a, a lot better and a lot more focused at becoming better. But certainly, it does require fortitude, strength, perseverance, because, you know, there is no easy way to get there. And I think most of us know that. But um, hard work, at the end of the day, that's what it's about. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Daniel Glass Podcast. If you like what you heard today, you can follow me on Facebook at Daniel Glass Drummer, Author, Educator. And since we're just getting this sucker up and running, please make sure to go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. Whether you liked it or hated it, whether it's one star or five stars, every review, every rating will help. (laughs) 
So there you have it, the one and only Daniel Glass talking about deliberate practice. And do yourself a favor, head over to iTunes and you can subscribe to Daniel's podcast or just go to DanielGlass.com. He has everything on there the same way Drummer's Resource does with all the show notes and all that stuff. Leave a rating and a review for him. Leave a rating and a review for Drummer's Resource. We would both appreciate it. Support the network that we're both on, Merge Network. And until the next podcast, keep drumming. Thank you so much for listening, and I will be talking to you soon. Peace.